Welcome back to a very special episode of the Leverage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And today, our guest needs no introduction, the man behind four now New York Times bestselling books. So congratulations. Or three, I'm sorry. This is the third or the fourth now. Just this is the fourth. List with this one. Yeah, so congratulations. It just happened last night, right? That's right. Just got the news. Number one, New York Times. So it's a very exciting week. Very exciting week for me and the whole team behind it. And, and a very big congratulations. So, of course, everybody, we are speaking to Mr. Tim Ferriss, and the newest book is called Tools of Titans, the Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. And I particularly like the wrench on the front. So, Tim, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thrilled to be on. So, my first question, Tim, is actually about how you got this book written, because, you know, this, it's a compilation. It's, it's from materials that have come from your awesome podcast, and yet it doesn't just feel like you transcribed a bunch of episodes and put it into a book. I mean, what was the process like for turning this into a book? It's, you know, everyone goes through different writing methods and, and you've talked about yours before, but this is a different kind of book. So what, what, what did that look like? It is. Yeah. It was the first book I actually enjoyed writing. <laughs> <laughs> I generally find the process very punishing. Uh, from a From a software standpoint, most of the research gathering was done through Evernote and uh, then Google Docs and collaboration through Google Docs, transcripts uploaded to Google Docs and Dropbox, and then the actual composition of the book, putting it into book form was done in a program called Scrivener. It's a big book, as you know, it's about 704 pages. I'd say 60% of it is based on the most actionable, favorite pieces of advice and routines and so on from podcast guests. Now, what's suppose new is 300 plus pages of the book are not based on the podcast directly and then my commentary so the book was initially put together it was not called tools of titans it was just a notebook for myself i was putting together the cliff notes of the most actionable impactful small things that had a big impact while i was uh, visiting paris with my family my mom had never been to paris my dad hadn't been since the 60s so we took that trip and i set aside the whole month just to put together this cliff notes for myself and then it grew and grew and grew and grew. And I was like, you know what? I'm starting to kind of mold this into a book for myself. I might as well just share it with my, with my readers and listeners who've been asking for something like this. Um, so that's, that's how it came together. It was a very, uh, it was a surprisingly smooth process and ended up incorporating a lot of the advice from the book in the writing of the book itself. Because, of course, we have a lot of best-selling authors a lot of storytellers, a lot of question askers like Alex Bloomberg and people who have created these huge radio and podcast uh, programs, hardcore history. So it was it was very meta in the sense that I used a lot of the advice from people in the book to write the book. I think that the, the layout, creating it in three parts, healthy, wealthy, and wise, I felt that it was really clever following the Benjamin Franklin quote. And from what I've read so far in it, it's really an awesome book. And a lot of particularly the the part where you're going through like the 17 tips and you're talking about thinking like the opposite and what can you cut out rather than what you need to add. It's a lot of the same kind of thinking process that Ari and I go through within our own company. So, we, uh, you know, I, I really gel with that that whole process. Yeah, I think, I think that getting what you want and wanting what you have. So let's just view those as the two sides of being successful, if we were going to use that word, are the result of 
asking better questions of yourself, of team members around you, of situations, other people. And like you mentioned, I mean, there are very specific questions that, say, an Arnold Schwarzenegger uses or a Jocko Willink, who's a uh, former Navy SEAL commander, or in, in my case, you know, you look at the Peter Thiels and the billionaires from Silicon Valley, there are very specific questions they ask. Uh, you know, why can't you accomplish your 10-year plan in the next six months? And you're intended to really actually answer that as ludicrous as it might seem, or how can you 10x the economics of your business in the next three months? That's from the chairman of the X Prize, something along those lines. And if you say that's impossible, his answer is, I don't accept that answer, try again. <laughs> and what these types of questions force you to do, or one you mentioned, you know, what if you could only solve this challenge or address this ambition by subtracting things rather than adding things, whether it's activities, uh, headcount, whatever my features, whatever it might be. These types of questions force you to at least temporarily abandon the assumptions and constraints that have led you to where you are, which is generally a place that can't address this grand ambition or problem that you're trying to solve. You've been like, what got you here won't get you where you want to get to go type of situation. So that, that's definitely a commonality across all sort of 200 people who are profiled in, uh, in tools titans for sure. Right. I mean, it's not just what your to-do list is. It's more importantly, what's on your not to-do list. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've started using tools that uh, are a, I believe you first introduced me to Zapier, for instance. And you have these, uh, if you were to look at sort of full stack productivity or full stack, I mean, if we're, if we're going by the namesake of the show, you know, leverage, right? Then you have the, the tools, uh, the kind of foot soldiers, so to speak, at the very bottom of the stack. And then as you go up, you have these higher levels of abstraction. And uh, you need, though, I think the beliefs and the philosophical framework and then the toolkit of high-level questions and so on at the top because it's easy to get obsessed with the latest app, the latest extension, the latest whiz-bang, shiny tech object. And if you don't understand the higher order principles, you're going to be really efficient. You'll be really fast at doing things that may or may not be important. Uh, so I think it's, it's really important, which is why I harp on stoicism so much and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius to have those higher level principles ingrained so that you can be really effective with using the tools. We often talk about the difference between being productive versus being efficient versus being effective. And I think that's a very important thing to sort of keep in mind as you inform the decisions that you make with the things that you use. So we know that uh, you don't work four hours. And I know that you've gotten a lot of annoyance in your mind out of people saying that you don't work four hours. But why would you uh, when you love what you do? But the, the, the question that I would have is if you could only work four hours in a week, what would you spend that time doing? I will address that on a couple of levels. So the first is that, and this is going to sound obnoxious, but I don't have any financial to need uh, need to work period. Uh, I've been very lucky with my tech investing career. I've been very fortunate to have a very good stretch with the books and also other companies that I've built. So if if I wanted to work zero hours per week per se, that that is an option on the table. Um, the other thing is that I think what a lot of folks miss if they're judging, say, the first book or uh, any of the first three books, and I think some people will notice this is my first book without the four-hour moniker, which has been a huge blessing and a huge curse <laughs> since the first book. It's like the number of four-hour jokes that I've had to eat has been uh, just unending. But when I'm on, I'm on. And when I'm off, I'm off. And I think this is 
very important to understand because most folks only see me on, say, the internet or in media, et cetera, when I'm on. Uh, which gives the sort of selective perception that I am on a lot more than I am. So for instance, when I'm in book launch mode, I have effectively two weeks, two weeks in New York, two weeks in San Francisco in separate months, December and January, where I focus on uh, batching as much as possible. And some of those particular appearances or Q&As or fill in the blank will not appear for months at a time. But then if I decide to take, for instance, I'll be taking an 18-day trip to the Grand Canyon, which I've never visited before for a kayaking trip, and I'll be completely offline, zero in terms of email activity, calendar, phone, etc. If I were to only work four hours per week right now, if uh, if we if we consider the podcast work, uh, that is what I would focus on. I would focus on the podcast because I, I enjoy it so much, and the opportunity that the podcast has given me as a master's degree in People finding and question asking, and and uh, we've, we've I've brought up questions a few times, and I think it's worth underscoring that the questions, and this is from Tony Robbins, uh, who's who's also in the book, but the, the the quality of your questions determine the quality of your life because questions are thinking all day long. We have an internal dialogue or monologue, and. Uh, the when you become more thoughtful about how you ask specific questions, your results improve both for yourself and interacting with other people. So for, for me, the podcast, and I would say if we were to generalize long form conversations with extremely smart people who do not shy away from taking controversial positions if they feel it's logically justified, that's how I would spend my time because the, the ROI is so high and just across the board affects everything for me. Who hasn't been on your podcast that you would absolutely love to be on your podcast? Oh, uh, there's a long list. Uh, but at the very, at the very top, I would say, uh, Neil Gaiman is just an incredible polymath of a writer and, uh, and is extremely gifted. If people out there are nonfiction purists, which I was for decades, and you kind of scoff at the idea of consuming anything that was produced from the imagination of another human being, <laughs> uh, just listen to the Graveyard Book audiobook read by Neil Gaiman himself. There are a few different options, but listen to that and <laughs> I promise you will not regret it. So there's Neil Gaiman. There is... Oprah, uh, I'm, who, who I'm endlessly fascinated by uh, for, for a million reasons I don't bore people with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you have Condoleezza Rice, who, who ah. really, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this show or not, but just, you are just zero, like, like at this point, zero fucks given. Like she's so blunt and I just <laughs> love that. I love that about her. And she's, she's, she's obviously at the top of her game in many, many respects. So I'd love to interview her. I would love to interview uh, Tina Fey. I think that's going to be a tough one, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Tina Fey would just be incredible. And the list, the list goes on. I would also like to interview uh, some really odd, maybe odd ones, but people no one has ever heard of. Like I would love to interview... Uh, <laughs> there are a few knife makers in the U.S. who are just insanely talented savants of knife making and people in the special operations communities will wait like six to 12 months just to get a knife. They'll save up for, for like an entire year to buy one of these handcrafted knives. And they tend to be completely insane. 
uh, <laughs> on some, not the Navy SEALs, but the knife makers. Like they're they're so <laughs> so selectively focused on this one thing that they tend to be completely nuts. And I would love to interview one of those one of those guys. Uh, I would love to interview like the highest priced uh, escort or call girl in the world. Like I think that would that would be a really fascinating conversation. Oh these are good, these are good ones. These yeah. are all good right? ideas for our podcast too. That's awesome. <laughs> Leverage. Yeah. Leverage. I, I make forty five thousand dollars a night in Geneva as a call girl. Let me tell you about let me tell you about my apps. Uh, so so those those are some that come to mind. It's just an endless it's not a well that I expect will go dry. That's the fun part about it. Right. Well so you know what's so what's so nice to hear like I mean you hear this in the podcast obviously I mean in, in your uh, podcast, but you can hear it so much now is that like you're in and honestly I hats off to you, like you're you're such a student still. Like you're so clearly eager to learn from these people that you just find interesting. And I think that that's really admirable. So that's and, my drug of choice. So that's my drug of choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that you'll find in any high performing person, right? Like take Tony Robbins, like no one's more of a student probably than Tony. And you know, most people would look at him as the teacher. So. Oh yeah. Tony has this fantastic, this gigantic notebook. It's like a Hogwarts spell book, this gigantic analog paper (laughs) notebook that he travels with and he'll talk to people and he will sit there engrossed and open up a notebook and start taking notes. Uh, He is absolutely the eternal student. And I think also if you really try to surround yourself with people who are better than you in some respect, doesn't have to be every respect, but if you really make an effort to be the weakest person in the room regularly at something, then you realize how how the more you learn and the more you dig, the less you know, <laughs> meaning you just realize how much is out there. And uh, that's, I think it can be a little intimidating, but it's really encouraging too, because you realize how, how many gold nuggets are just sitting out there waiting to be discovered and digested by you. Well, it's like the old saying, like if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And even with yeah. our hiring with the VA uh, company that we're doing, uh, Leverage, uh, we're constantly trying to hire people smarter than us. And like, that's what we strive for is to get, you know, the only way we're going to grow is getting people better than us on the team. So surrounding yourself with yeah. good people is key to success, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And if you talk to, for instance, you know, Reed Hoffman, who's just an incredibly brilliant entrepreneur and investor, he's was firefighter in chief with Peter Thiel at PayPal, then, you know, have made a couple hundred million with that or whatever it was founded LinkedIn, which just sold for whatever it was, six billion, eight billion, I don't know, forty billion, whatever the number was, to Microsoft not too long ago. And uh he's considered the Oracle of Silicon Valley among the A players in Silicon Valley that which is saying something. Nicest guy you could ever meet also, which is not always the case. And he will distinguish the A players on his team in a number of ways, but he has said that you can you can identify the A players because they don't take your instructions at face value. In other words, if you give them an assignment, but you're running around like a chicken with its head cut off and you aren't giving it maybe as much thought as you should, and they can think of a better approach to solving the same problem, or maybe a convincing argument for why it is a bad allocation of time and resources. That's how you can identify one of the ways A players is that they don't take your assignments at face value. They will actually critically think about them. 
And you need smart people and you need not only smart people, but empowered people who feel like that is an option on the table. So another thing that Rita said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said in the name of speed, and this was something he said to his chief of staff, who I also know, he said, in the name of speed, I, it, it is perfectly acceptable for you to have 10% foot faults. Foot faults is actually a term used in tennis where you fault because your foot is in the wrong position when you serve, for instance. But the point he was making is that if you can get things done really quickly by making autonomous decisions, then I'm perfectly happy to accept like a 10% breakage that you're going to get 10% of the stuff wrong. He's like, but in the, if, if that allows you to get things done twice as quickly in general, I'm perfectly happy to accept that. And that's kind of exactly what yeah. we tell clients when we are promoting them to use our service for outsourcing. We tell them, look, in a lot of cases, we might even do a better job than you, but even say we do 90% as good as you, but it frees up all of your time for you to just do things that is utilizing your unique ability. Like that is worth it. And you should just give yeah. up that extra 10%. And, I, and in your book, I was reading a section. We literally had the same thing happen to us where it was a huge time suck approving payments, like payment approval or charge approval. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, and actually literally exactly in your example in the book where you're saying you, you just, told them that anything under $100, they don't need approval, and then you moved it to 500 and 1,000. We did the mm-hmm. exact same thing in the first couple months of our company because we just it was just taking up way too much time. And you know, even if we've lost a few thousand dollars because of it, we've freed up you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars worth of our time in doing so. Oh, yeah. And, and there's also, I think, in the, let's just call it the cult of productivity, uh, which I am a... <laughs> Was a member. There's a very, um, a very dangerous, I think, uh, frame or lens through which a lot of people make decisions, and that is through the question, "Do I have the time?" Uh, and uh, meaning, well, if I can, if I can perform this task and say five minutes or less, I should just do this task now. And uh, there are times in which that makes sense, but the question you should be asking is not only can I afford the time or do I have the time, but can I afford the distraction? For instance, I mean, everybody in Tools of Titans, nearly everybody makes a habit of blocking out on their calendar uninterrupted blocks of time of say three to five hours in length where they're completely uninterrupted. Because if, if you are trying to do any type of deep work, whether that's writing, programming, or otherwise thinking on the business instead of working in the business, you need those long stretches of time. So even though you might have, say, two minutes to take a quick phone call and do some triage every 30 minutes in that block, if you do that, you'll never get the deep work done. So you, you have the time, but you can't afford the distraction. Uh, and I think that viewing attention as a, a more valuable currency than time, because time without attention is not valuable, is, is really, really important just as a, as a base assumption that people can work from. Yeah, so it's actually funny. So I block out 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. every day, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I block out almost the whole day. So for that exact reason. And the last time that I had you on the show, um, it was around when the Far Body had come out. One of the things I'd asked you was what was the next skill that you really wanted to learn? And at the time, you said that you want to learn how to sing. So first of all, I'd like to check check in on that. But it's a slightly different question than who do you want to have on the podcast. I'd like to know, like, what is it that you really want to learn next? So two questions, two more questions. Yeah. Uh, so 
the singing <laughs> I have not made much progress on the singing so not all of my harebrained schemes or targets end up lasting for the long term <laughs> these are all experiments and some get cut short so singing has not happened yet but in terms of what I'd like to learn next I would say it's something that I've already had quite a taste of and I'd like to continue to focus on which is uh, gymnastic strength training and mobility just for a, as a long-term investment in my I suppose functional longevity and uh, really treating my body more and more like a vehicle for everything else, which is exactly what it is, of course. I mean, the brain is an organ encased in this meat machine that is the body. So treating that accordingly and prioritizing it that way focusing on gymnastic strength training and also things like acro yoga. Uh, recently I had a tear in my ACL, but I've just become infatuated with acro yoga, which is why there's a whole chapter on it <laughs> in Tools of Titans. Uh, and it was really funny recently. It hasn't aired yet, but I was able to get Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, up on my feet, flying him around on, on TV, which nobody expected. Like it was not wow. in the script, which was hilarious. So that'll be coming shortly. But I'm I'm very, very... Fascinated by, in love with, and uh, obsessed with on some level, gymnastic strength training, primarily Christopher Sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R, and then acro yoga. That's funny. I'm actually going to a body movement class this Saturday here in Manhattan by uh, my trainer, Eric Owings, here in the city. Um, cool. That's yeah, fun. I, I totally agree with you. Like, I mean, that, in order to... In order for anyone to be effective, their bodies have to be in tune and healthy. And if you throw your back out because you're sitting around or you're just not moving properly, you can't really do anything properly. Correct. Yeah, agreed. You mentioned before that you know you don't have to work anymore and that you've actively invested in companies. So, what are you investing in now? Are you still actively an investor, or are you more focused now on being an author and do podcasts and other things? Uh, I actually stopped all early stage tech investing about two years ago, coming up on two years, maybe a year and a half, a year and a half to two years ago, uh, because the signal to noise ratio is becoming very difficult for me to manage as a part-time job. And I did not want to become a full-time venture capitalist with a firm and a fund and so on. So I haven't done any early stage tech investing uh, in that entire period of time. And I think it's important to know where you can exert moderation in your life, where you have that control, and where you are an on or off binary person. And that applies to diet. It applies to, let's say, having chocolate-covered cashews in your house. I'm binary with those. Like I'm not going to have two or three and then move on with my day. I'll sit there like a piglet and consume 3,000 calories by the time... This phone, call, this phone call ends. So I can't have them in my house is, is, the, is the moral of that lesson. But with investing, it's very similar. I couldn't limit myself and I've yet to meet a single good venture capitalist who can do this to one deal a month, one deal a quarter. Very, very few people uh, have I ever met who've done that for any period of time. So I stopped it completely. What am I investing in right now? I'm investing in my health and I am investing in my continued education in the form of studying people who are extremely good at asking questions. And uh, that could be a Debbie Millman, who I've gotten to know better recently, uh, who, who started the first design-based podcast or focused podcast in the world, just an incredible interviewer. So I've, I've really become interested in, in studying how she does her research in particular. And uh, that those are the places where I'm investing. Financially speaking, and I'm not saying other people should do this, but 
I have so many illiquid assets. So in other words, uh, investments that I cannot sell, I can't rebalance my portfolio with these private companies that uh, I'm very heavily cash-based right now or cash-like equivalents. And I'm okay with that. A lot of people think it's stupid. I, I just, I sleep better at night <laughs> when I have uh, readily deployable cash on hand. And maybe that's reflective of a pretty conservative, financially conservative upbringing that I had, but that's just my preference. I have like 90% in super, super safe stuff and 10% in highly, highly speculative stuff. And uh, Nassim Taleb has called that the barbell strategy. It's not for everybody. Absolutely not. Um, you know, I've, I've invested in companies that do something very different, like Wealthfront, for instance, which is... Uh, yeah. And that is a very different approach, which I will be taking advantage of uh, in probably 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 a year or two, uh, but for a host of reasons with the way that my finances and portfolio are put together currently, um, there are some challenges associated with it. But um, that's that's I suppose my answer. I'm doubling down on education and health, which I think when in doubt, those are great places to invest because the benefits uh, ripple out to everything else. Education and health uh, obviously is cont is continuous and never ending. Is there a next project that you have in the near term horizon, like another book that I mean, I mean, I, I know this one just came out, but are you already thinking about another book or a product or some other next step? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm not. And my my thinking on long term planning has changed a lot in the last say ten years. I, for the last decade, have not had a, any five or 10 year or 20 year plan. And there are certain personal goals that I have that are long term. But aside from, from those types of things, I don't have a business related five or 10 year plan at this point. And the reason is I, I found greater success, again, not for everybody, but for me, looking at my life as a series of two-week experiments and six-month projects. So I have six-month projects, or in some cases, they're slightly longer, like a book project, and then two-week experiments within that six-month project. And the rationale is as follows. If I try to have, or if I wanted to have a reliable five-year plan, you're going to have to bunt a lot of the time, to use just a, a baseball metaphor, meaning you are going to have to play your games and you're going to have to make your choices operating within about say 70% of your full capacity for it to be a reliable plan. Because if you're, if you're swinging for the fences and you're pushing into the red zone, which is right outside of your comfort zone, you're going to whiff and then it's going to be an unreliable plan. Does that make sense? So, you, so to have a reliable five-year plan, you have to really only play within about 70% of your capacity. And I would prefer to go at 100%, try to put out the best that I can put out in the case of, say, Tools of Titans, for instance, which has been a, just a crazy process. I mean, great, but oh my God, like all hands on deck, everybody, 24-7 <laughs> for a long time now. And, and uh, it's, it's been fantastic to put it out. Really proud of it. I don't think I can even conceive of these random doors that will open in the next two or three months. So my pretty much my entire 2017 calendar is wide open precisely because I want I don't want to pre-commit to things 
when more interesting doors might open in the next, say, four to eight weeks. So there's a lot of slack in the system. Uh, so the short answer is I have no idea. I have no idea. I already filmed a first season of television uh, called Fear Less, Fearless with less in parentheses, which uh, was, was co-produced by Vince Vaughn, who's a big fan of the podcast, the actor and director. And we already did 10 episodes of that. So that'll come out in, I want to say, April or May on DirecTV and iTunes and a bunch of different apps and so on. Um, but that's already done. Right? That's locked and loaded and, and ready to go. So that's another thing that will give the illusion of me counting the pavement straight 24-7 for all the way through to mid two thousand. Uh, 17. But the fact is, it was done many, many months ago. It's just it's locked and loaded in the chamber and ready to ready to fire. Well, that, that's awesome. I definitely can't wait to see that. Um, so, in, since you, you love the pursuit of great questions and asking great questions, I, I'm I'm actually really interested to hear how you would view this question and answer it. When we interview people to work with us, the last question that we always ask in the interviews, which was asked to me in college for some special group that I wanted to get into, is if we don't hire you. Why do you think that will be? Um, which is a very different. It's a, it's a very different question. Like, what's your weakness? So I'm curious, and you know, you could change that, paraphrase that too. If we're not going to work with you, Tim, and you can generalize it too. Like, how how would you answer a question like that? Yeah, it's a good one. It's actually very similar to what uh, General Stanley McChrystal does. So re- uh, retired four-star general, used to ran uh, you know ran JSOC. Effectively, think of it as all special operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, he will often ask people, he's hiring for a crystal group, and he'll say, there are some people out there who might say, you know, let's say the person's name is John. John is is great, but, and dot, 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 and then he'll just sit there in silence and see how they finish it. <laughs> Which is like a very, very awkward, but awesome way to to see how people respond. So if, if I were to say, all right, if you decided not to work with me, it would be because I would say I am very often impatient and extremely persnickety about details. Uh, So I can overreact to any perceived sloppiness. Does that make sense? And that can drive, and it does does drive a lot of people crazy. Um, So if, if, if I get an email pitch from someone for a collaboration and there are two spelling errors in it, I'm like, yeah, this is probably not going to happen. And it's kind of like the David Lee Roth, uh, I think it's the, the, the brown M&M's rider that he had in his contracts. And people thought he was a lunatic. So David Lee Roth had this rider, which was something along the lines of, in the dressing room, I want a bowl of brown M&M's. I want all of the other colors to be removed. And people thought he was a complete egomaniacal lunatic, which may also be the case, but he explained the rationale, which was for a complex tour involving multiple semi-trailer trucks uh, with tons and tons of equipment with thousands or tens of thousands of cables and switches and so on. If someone, if a tour manager doesn't read the contract closely enough to see the clause on the brown M&Ms, there are many other things that are going to go wrong. And so my, I think my, the way that I assess attention to detail may sometimes be unfair, but it saves me from a lot of headache. So I, I mean, in, in my mentality, the, the, the partnerships you do that end up 
going sideways are going to hurt you more than the partnerships you opt not to do, if that makes sense. Um, so I would say a yeah, general impatience and a very unreasonable high level of uh, sometimes seemingly capricious, ludicrous attention to detail. It, 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 it can drive people crazy. And in the past, it has driven people crazy. <laughs> the last question, uh, mm-hmm. and you've answered it before, but I, I, you've learned more now, as we know. What are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Okay, so for people to be more effective, uh, I would say at this point, the three that come to mind would be number one, above all else, remember that financially, emotionally, psychologically, physically, you are the average of the five people you associate with most. So guiding principle number one for all things, that would be point number one. You're the average of the five people you associate with most. Number two, I would say regularly apply the exercise of fear setting in your life. Schedule it on a monthly or quarterly basis, which is exactly what I do. And People can Google fear setting in my name and it'll pop right up. There's also a big chapter on it, Tools of Titans. But that exercise, I think, is absolutely necessary as a complement to goal setting. Because goal setting by itself is oftentimes impotent because of the emergency break that we have on, which is fear uh, or a a collection of different fears, perceived risks, et cetera. Uh, And that's why we tend to have a lot of the same New Year's resolutions from one year to the next. All right, so fear setting would be number two. And then number three, this is an oldie but goodie, I would say uh, regular, again, scheduled 80-20 analysis. Now, 80-20 analysis uh, does not only apply to the positive. So I would encourage people to as a way of developing their not-to-do list on, say, a monthly basis or when they're feeling overwhelmed to journal and, and, and write down to the best of their ability the 20% of activities, relationships, obligations, etc., uh, or even assumptions that are causing 80-plus percent of the emotions you don't want to have. And that, I think, can be a spectacularly effective way for choosing the things not to do or the things to cut back on or the things to eliminate altogether. I do this all the time. So those would be the first three that come to mind. Those are really, really great. So where can uh, people go to find out more? So people can find more. Uh, Tools of Titans is everywhere. I think it's my best book. Uh, I'm really happy with it. uh, You can find it on toolsoftitans.com. They can find it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, certainly. It's currently right now, I think it's an 87% five-star rating with 400 400 plus reviews. I just found out literally a few minutes before this call, of all the books on Amazon, it it is the number two most wished for book of all books on Amazon. Uh, Number one is J.K. Rowling, so I'll take it. <laughs> and uh, people can find toolsoftitans.com certainly on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere. And there are sample chapters up on toolsoftitans.com, so people can probably check that out. The forward from Arnold Schwarzenegger, the introduction, a bunch of fun stuff there. So I hope people check it out. I do think that it is a, uh, a of all of my books, and this is also coming from my proofreaders and copy editors and my friends who helped, uh, the most giftable because there's just something in it for everyone and. Uh, each of these small chapters, you know, five to 12 or 15 pages, maybe you can sit down with a cup of coffee. And if no matter what the problem you're facing, the challenge, the goal, by the time you finish that cup of coffee, you will have something that you can try. 
It's the, it's the book form of a panacea. <laughs> <laughs> doing my best, doing my best. It's, it doesn't have all the silver bullets, but I mean, if, if anybody's going to provide the cheat sheet with some, at least a selection of silver bullets, I think it's the people that I've interviewed and had in the book. Yeah. Well, Tim, th- this is, I mean, incredible as, as we expected. Thank you so much again. And, and congratulations. And we do push, everyone should buy this book. It's great. So thank you, Tim. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on.